Welcome to another episode of the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to the referendum on Scotland's future is underway and in these podcasts we're examining the choices for the Scottish public, looking at what we do differently to Westminster already with the limited powers we do have and what we could and would do differently with the full powers of independence. Why? Well, we want everyone to be informed, involved and hopefully inspired to look at the possibilities for Scotland. Because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP, and on today's episode, I'm in conversation with Roger Mullen and Alison Thewlis to discuss Scotland's opportunities on tax, currency, and the choices a newly independent Scotland could take. Former MP Roger Mullen is an honorary professor at Stirling University and chairs a humanitarian organisation speaking on behalf of innocent victims of explosive weapons. He's undertaken many international assignments for United Nations agencies, the World Bank and Asian Development Bank. He's a former Scottish Junior 440 yards champion and met his wife when they both appeared at the Gaiety Theatre in the musical Carousel. Alison Thewlis has been the SMP MP for Glasgow Central since 2015 and is Treasury spokesperson. She's a former councillor and studied politics and international relations at the University of Aberdeen. Her reputation as a staunch Motherwell fan also landed her a guest slot on Off the Ball and they both join me today. So hello to Alison Thewlis. Hi Drew, good to speak to you. And to Roger Mullen, thanks for joining us. Hi there Drew, good to see you again. Roger, is Scotland benefiting from decisions on tax and our economy uh, being taken in London? Despite devolution, the UK is still one of the most economically centralised countries in the world and most of the benefit and all of the fiscal decisions are taken to benefit predominantly the City of London and in its immediate environs. And that's why disproportionately the further you go away from London, unless there are correcting factors, uh, it is hugely disadvantaged to many parts of the UK. Nobody ever questions the viability of Ireland or Finland or even the likes of Luxembourg. And, 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 you know, I remember in the morning after the 2019 election being asked to go to London to take part in BBC Question Time. Uh, so I set off having had less than an hour's sleep. And, and when I was on the show, um, I was actually a bit stunned that one of the London audience asked the old question, can Scotland afford to be independent? And I remember thinking, really? <laughs> that old chestnut? I thought that had been dealt with back in 2014 when even David Cameron was forced to admit that Scotland had what it took to be independent. But, but it's clear even now that the myth of too poor is still doing the rounds. So let's deal with that. Coming to you, Alison, first. Let's just take that question. Can Scotland for, afford to be an independent country? Of course, um, absolutely it could. We can't afford not to be independent in many different, in many ways, um, I'd consider. And I suppose one of the things that gets reflected, and you see this popping up on, on, on social media every now and again, it was is what was said about Malta, is what was said about the likes of Singapore, uh, that they couldn't afford to be independent. And look at them now. Nobody is, is questioning that uh, now. And no country that has gained its independence uh, has ever gone back into a union once having done so. So I think that question is really one that, ha- that ought to have been answered. I suppose it's how closely people are paying attention and perhaps it's that, that um, UK question time audience um, 
where perhaps the debates that we've been having in Scotland are not that wider debate that's happening across the rest of the UK. Unquestionably, Scotland can afford to be independent. I'm no economist, but I'm told by economists that the basis for a really healthy economy is that country's assets. And, and Scotland's blessed with enormous natural assets, human capital. It has pretty much all the mechanisms of an advanced economy. Uh, Roger, what are your thoughts on that? In terms of an asset base, proportionately, it's one of the richest countries in the world. Now, there's a difference, however, between having assets, such as those you've already mentioned, really, like uh, very well-educated population, natural resources and the like. There's a difference between having the assets and then having those assets husband husbanded and utilised effectively in the interests of society. And that's where the problem is with our assets. It's not the asset base, it's the way in which political decisions are made that affect them. I was talking uh, uh, a good uh, month or so back with a good friend of mine, David Simpson, Professor David Simpson, and he he said to me uh, of his many years, he wrote the first, as far as I'm aware, serious paper on the economics of independence back in the 1960s. And he said, there's a fascinating thing, he said, if you look at many of the papers that are produced, whether by those who are unionists or those who are in favour of independence, there is often the phrase comes up about what's the cost of independence. He says, nobody has ever put together the information to answer the question, what is the price of dependence? And his view is that that's a piece of work that needs doing, and that's something that I'm... I've started a little project on to begin to uh, look at, and that is the price of dependence. You know, when, for example, no doubt we'll get on to talk about things like debt and the deficit. Any debt and deficit that arises in Scotland at the moment is a function of what? It's not a function of our assets. It's not a function of what we could be. It's a function of the economic management by the UK historically. Mm-hmm. And, and, that's, and that is our fundamental issue and why we need to pursue independence as quickly as possible. Roger raised the point about can we afford to stay in the UK? Well, analysis by the House of Commons Library shows that countries with a similar or smaller population than Scotland had less inequality than the UK. The UK has the worst inequality of any country in Northwest Europe. And... A recent Business for Scotland report shows that since the 1990s, 32 territories have become independent countries. Now, some have joined the EU and some have not. Some use the euro as their currency and some have their own currencies. But the average GDP growth of these countries has been, during that time, significantly higher than for Scotland under the UK. And that's not surprising, as a recent report from Westminster's Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Committee pointed out that businesses outside of London and the southeast of England find it easier to raise finance from the USA than they do from the UK. And that historical impact of not being able to make decisions, Alison, uh, mm-hmm. you know, here uh, in terms of what's right for the people here has a, a big impact across society, doesn't it? 
It absolutely does. And when you look at things like the potential um, that we have of those assets of what we hold, we've got you know, 25% of the offshore wind resources in Europe, uh, 25% of the tidal energy resources in Europe. But yet the way the UK energy grid is set up penalises us for having those assets. Mm-hmm. You're making a, a terrific point. And in, in the meantime, Westminster has pointed towards wasteful new nuclear. <laughs> you know, yeah, absolutely. So you're going, these are decisions taken by the UK government, not in Scotland's interests, actively working against what we would like to develop and where we would like to be. And it just seems to me that until we get the full control over those resources, um, until we're able to to, to husband them, as as Roger has said, um, we're we're not making the most of what those assets could be. Um, And pointing the skills of our, our, our people towards those assets as well. And you say, well, if you're going to build this, if you're going to develop this out, in these different areas, you need the skilled people standing behind it to, to make the most of those resources too. But on that subject, Alison, we often talk about the levers of power, the tools to run the economy. What changes, in your view, need to be made? I think the, the one around the energy grid is, is a good example of that. Um, but there are many different uh, functions that we could have uh, within our own economy to to make the most of those things. So there's been a lot of talk about coronavirus and the support that's been given by the UK government and how that's a benefit of the union. That's just a function of the economic system we have. It's not a benefit of the union. And every, every country, country, every country around, around the world has been taking action, yeah. Has the, taken the, action, the, has done unprecedented right. things in order to support its economy. I mean, an example I would give, I mean, I think that was a particularly good example Alison gave about energy. The example I would give is, is about the entire tax system. Uh, the UK has got one of the most expensive tax systems to run, proportionate head of population. It's roughly twice the cost of, for example, Denmark running its own tax system right, per head of population. Yet, we also have one of the most inefficient tax systems in the world when you look at non-collected tax, the so-called tax gap. And also, we have one that is com- that is very open to abuse, when I was an MP, I remember one day I phoned up the Treasury and they said, I want to talk to somebody who can tell me about the UK tax system, how complicated it is. And I eventually was put through to this guy. I think his first name was John. And when I said what I was interested in, his enthusiasm to meet me was unbelievable, he said, because nobody ever talks to him. <laughs> and so, and so you, you will know how surprising this is. In less than two hours, he was in Portcullis House sitting down having a coffee with me. <laughs> and basically what he said was that he had been charged some time before with looking at the uh, UK tax system as a whole to identify the number of reliefs, if you like. And of course, as he said, every, every, every relief is a loophole for somebody else. And he said, so far... I've identified 1,100 (laughs) and I'm not finished. And so the loopholes in the system are huge. Now, what then happened? Just just before you go on to tell us what then happened, he identified 1,100. Just very quickly, Roger, how many of those 1,100 holes do you think have been filled since that conversation? What I think has happened is they've increased They've increased. Right, sorry, I didn't. There's been a number of finance bills since then, so almost definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what the UK government does is it it, it it tends to add to the complexity with every initiative. It never moves in the direction of simplifying. 
And of course, so if, the, if you do get these things right, you can make a massive difference to society because, you know, it's often these, you know, hundreds and hundreds of small changes that uh, that add up to a healthier society. I know. And who is it benefits from all these uh, loopholes? It's the big corporations who can afford to hire the lawyers to find them and how best to exploit them. And yet what happens is, particularly in a country like Scotland, where we are so depend dependent upon SMEs, it's SMEs who tend to be the ones who have to follow the rules, who don't dodge it, and who, who are suggesting. So, so that you will yeah. get your SME in your constituency and analysis constituency proportionally paying more than your Amazon of this world paying taxation. You're suggesting if you're one of these big corporations or indeed if you're a chum or a crony or something like that, you'll find a way through the, the tax system that's not available to the vast majority of of companies. Absolutely. Yeah. Alison, what are your thoughts on that? I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I think, you know, and one of the big advantages of Bent Scotland is, is looking at those things afresh and saying this is what exists just now, this enormous tax code with all its complexity and its, its 11, 1100 uh, loopholes and everything else and saying, well, what do we need here? You know, how do we want to um, create growth? How do we want to make things simpler for companies? Uh, how do we want to make sure that people pay their taxes? Um, and the way in which the system works just now sort of just doesn't work that way. Um, people look for those those things that they can get around paying rather than paying the things that they ought to. And at the moment, the Treasury Select Committee that I sit on is doing um, an inquiry into economic crime. And it, it, the system really does advantage people who want who wish to um, carry out economic crime because it, it goes undetected and it goes unpunished, by and yeah. large. Uh, the, the police don't have the expertise and the skills to, to catch those that are taking advantage of the system. Um, and companies house uh, practically facilitate it in the way in which they approach things. And Roger and I have had uh, long and weary on, on companies house and SLPs and other things uh, besides in the past. And these things, there's no kind of real impetus to deal with them from the UK government. They're letting these things go by the wayside and it's nobody's priority, so it doesn't happen. So there's a huge amount of tax just not being paid, um, which could be going into the coffers, which could be paying for the NHS, which could be paying for schools, all those kinds of things. Um, and I think the advantage of looking at a system afresh means that you can see right across the board, here are the things that are important, here are the things that are not important, here's where we want people to pay tax, but as simple kind of, as that. But we're kind of told, you know, by you know people who oppose independence, you've got to run the economy the same way as the UK has been running the economy for all these years. Roger, you... you yeah, well, it's I mean, it's an absolutely ridiculous proposition. I mean, name me one other country in the world that says we want to model the way in which we run our economy on the UK. There isn't a single one, <laughs> not one. I think that's become uh, sharper in recent months, yeah. If it, if it was so good, why are people not choosing to go along this route? I mean, if I take Alison example, she mentioned something uh, uh, I was involved in and she's been involved in, and that's Scottish Limited Partnerships uh, and the way in which the UK government, despite the abuse that we know that takes place, despite the costs of uh, 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 countless hundreds of millions of pounds probably to the exchequer, right, abuse, they won't move to close them because it suits their pals in the city of London, having these types of uh, financial vehicles. Uh, and a more recent one that I know Alison is also familiar with, of these things called mini umbrella companies. 
where the estimate from the Guardian is there could have been as much as 4.5 billion lost to the Exchequer, uh, including through the abuse of the UK government's test and trace system because of the way in which they have chosen to privatise that out. And you're getting these kinds of companies now that are impossible to police. HMRC and Companies House cannot police them. When I was an MP, I effectively asked the question, how many companies are registered in Companies House and how many people police them? You know, uh, that is, who follow up on the registrations and make sure they're compliant. The answer, I think it was in 2016, the answer was there was over four and a quarter million registered with Companies mm -hmm. House, but there were only six full-time equivalents policing it. In other words, it's not policed at all. So in all of these uh, losses, uh, the, the, the failure to collect tax, the fraud, all of that has a direct effect on the choices that are being made uh, societally just now by Westminster, you know, because other people have to pay the cost of that, don't they, Alison? They do. And I think this goes, I suppose, to the, the purpose of tax in the first place and how we talk about tax. Um, and lots of the kind of narrative around it was, well, it's a burden. Tax is a burden. It's a terrible burden we have to get rid of in some way. Tax is, is a duty and an obligation and the price you pay for living in a, in a civilised society. And it pays for all that infrastructure that, that companies and uh, that companies need and that society needs. You know, we, you're not going to have um, doctors if you don't pay for education at primary schools. It's, it's about seeing th these things all the way through. Um, you can't have a company importing things if there's no decent road infrastructure to, to bring things in or real infrastructure to bring things in. So I think we need to kind of switch that conversation about how we talk about tax. Indeed. So so let's talk about the um, an, another type of burden we're told that Scotland has, um, Roger. What What is the debt position? What the debt and deficit position of Scotland? What's your views on that? Well, the debt position of Scotland at the moment is entirely the responsibility of the UK. And in international law, if we become independent, we have got no responsibility for the historic debt built up by a UK government. Uh, we are in, if you were to look at the books as it were just today, people could say, oh, there's a substantial debt burden that proportionally would uh, 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 appears to fall to Scotland. There's a substantial deficit for a number of reasons. But the key question is, why is there these levels of debt and deficit? Right? And so the answer to that, I think, very much lies with the historic management of the economy, which has not been geared to serve the interests of Scotland, or indeed the north of England, or uh, other parts uh, uh, of the UK. One of the great advantages of independence, if there was an independent Scottish government, they then become responsibility for the good governance of Scotland, for focusing on the needs of our economy, for making sure we develop a, a, a system that suits our particular needs, that suits the size of our economy, that suits the different asset base that we've got in our economy, and as Alison rightly said, responds to the needs of the people in our society. Because at the end of the day, eh, what is an economy? An, eco an economy is driven by people and it is there at the end of the day to serve 
people. It is not an abstract in that sense. So that it is through, as Alison said earlier, it is through the skills of the Scottish people being properly deployed. It is through the encouragement of our entrepreneurs and our innovators, such as the example Alison gave earlier in their earlier discussion, I think, before we went on the air about a company she was visiting in her, her own constituency today. We need to encourage these entrepreneurs. We need to encourage these innovators. We need to encourage the upskilling of our people. And through that, you begin to drive the economy more purposefully. But then at the end of the day, the purpose of that is so that we serve all of the people of our society, so that they get the benefits of a health sector that is fit for purpose, so that they get the benefits of full education and so on. And so what is often lost in these discussions, uh, uh, and I'm not trying to dodge your question about debt and deficit, but they often, it often completely misses the point that at the heart of economics, you can't understand economics without having the primacy of people and how they behave and what their needs are at the heart of the system. And that's what we can really change for the better. Now, you mentioned there, Roger, that the UK has responsibility for the debt. Nobody's suggesting that during negotiations there wouldn't be a discussion about, you know, the uh, the issues around that uh, in terms of uh, Scotland becoming independent. Um, but it, it's true to say that Scotland's also been paying its way all that way through in terms of, if you look at the uh, the the JERS figures that it's a very imperfect imperfect uh, uh, measure because it doesn't it, even even the the people the IFS and other people look at will admit that they're uh, it doesn't give the full picture of Scotland but one of the lines in there shows that Scotland has paid something like 130 billion pounds of public service debt interest despite having no powers to run up uh, any debt during oh, that time uh, 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 absolutely and what are we paying that interest on well for example we're paying interest in the borrowing that allows us to be a nuclear power, mm. to have trident systems in the Clyde and so forth. Why on earth would we want to pay a penny towards that? Yet we're paying millions towards that. And so this is back to the fundamental issue of the kinds of choices that are being made about the management of our society. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Alison, what are your thoughts on the, uh, the debt and deficit argument that's uh, put forward? I would agree with a lot of what Roger has said as well, but I think, again, it's about normalising that. It's going to, well, most countries have this. Most countries, particularly after coronavirus, all the um, the additional spending that has happened over the past year, uh, most countries are, are in a similar boat. But that doesn't mean that they're independent countries. You know, all of them are managing their affairs. They're all getting on with uh, the, the business of being a country uh, in the world and, and working with their neighbours and looking after their people and doing all of these really normal things. So it's, it's not something that should be held up uh, as being the um, the exception. It's the norm. Most countries do operate um, with some degree of deficit and some degree of debt. Um, and we need to kind of normalise that and say, well, it's not, a, it's not a barrier. It's just how countries work. Looking at the, the issue of deficit, uh, you know, you talked about it being you know, quite a normal thing for countries to have it. It's incredibly normal um, across the whole of the world for that to happen. But it's often used as a reason why Scotland can't, for example, join the European Union because the notional deficit level um, that's identified as is too high. Is that really a barrier, Alison? 
I wouldn't say so, no. And the main reason for this is because uh, the EU is a pragmatic political organisation. Because um, if you were to say, for example, at the point where you had the reunification of Germany, that wouldn't have met the EU's rules. No, under no circumstances would that have been, you know, if you were going by the book, would those things have been allowed? But the political reality of it was, of course, people wanted to have that. No, people weren't going to question it or weren't going to stop um, a reunified Germany uh, mm. happening because of an EU rule says such and such. No. But that's something that is is managed by the political reality of the circumstances. And that's a key thing. That's a key thing in the EU, isn't it? That they they just want to see your plan for getting there because other countries have joined with a higher deficit than, uh, than uh, what yeah. is targeted, Roger. Yeah, and and the and the way in which, as as you know, Drew, at the moment there are only two countries in the EU that satisfy their own deficit rules, uh, and so I think Alison makes actually an extremely important political point here that is often missed about the EU. There's a difference between an organisation having rules and how it then interprets and implements them, right? So that, for example, people often go on about, uh, uh, you have to join the Euro. Well, tell that to the Swedes. Mm -hmm. They've got the ambition, uh, unfulfilled, and probably will always be unfulfilled to join the Euro. But the EU take a very pragmatic view of those countries that didn't join and they take a very pragmatic view they're, they're obviously taking a very pragmatic view about the deficits of the countries not only that it goes beyond that they they have actually been encouraging some countries to uh, take on more of a deficit so that they can address some of the issues so what you, i mean so what you've got to realize is the eu is a political institution and you know as well as I do, and as well as all your listeners do, that politics is not entirely driven by simply what are the rules. It is also driven by the judgments people make at any one time about how far they go in one direction and how far they go in the other. And that's not going to change. And it's that flexibility that independent countries have that we need. And on that, you know, one of the other barriers that's often thrown up is one of currency. You know, you've got to join the euro to get into the EU, which always comes as a a, a shock to people like me. You know, I've, I've been an honorary consul to Romania, one of the newest entrants to uh, the European Union. You're still using their own currency all these years after uh, joining yeah. the European Union, as are many other countries in the uh, EU. That that's a bit of a nonsense. But let's let's talk about. Uh, currency it's always a question that's thrown down as a barrier uh, to independence when it comes to currency the SNP as a party have a policy to adopt a new currency after independence when fiscal conditions show that the time is right however it will be up to the new and democratically elected government of a newly independent Scotland to make that choice in the future what are your thoughts on that Roger I think the currency debate is largely nonsense. <laughs> uh, I think we are partly responsible for that because of, I would have to say, a pretty inept way in which we raised and dealt with the currency issue, such as it was back in 2014. I mean, uh, let me uh, uh, put it by telling a wee story about myself, first of all. Before I became an MP, I ran a number of very small consultancy and research companies. We did a lot of our work overseas, right? Uh, because of that, 
operating from a small office in Fife, I operated our companies in three different currencies. We used sterling when we were trading and getting contracts within the UK. When we were operating uh, laterally with EU countries, such as in Southern Ireland, we operated through euros. And because of all the work I did with the United Nations and the World Bank for many years, had to operate in uh, the dollar. Now, what this would be called in the jargon is I was operating with parallel currencies. There are parallel countries, uh, currencies going on all over the place. When people talk about are we going to have use sterling or using a Scots pound, it's kind of missing the point. We don't just use one currency at the moment. There are multiple currencies going on that are interchangeable in many different ways. So the issue is uh, 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 what, what are the circumstances that we are going to face come independence? Well, my view is a very simple one. We don't know precisely what the state of the world is going to be in in the day come independence. We don't know precisely what the challenges and what the opportunities are that we're going to face. And therefore, from my standpoint, the sensible thing is to leave the timing of any alternative currency choice to an independent Scottish government. I don't have the brilliance I don't know anybody in the world that has the brilliance to know precisely what our circumstance is going to be when we're independent in a few years' time and what the best judgment is going to be of the timing of introducing if we want to introduce our own currency. Well, of course, Alison, hundreds of countries have become independent in the past couple of centuries. And, and even from the UK, I think there's something like 60 in the the, the past hundred years have become independent. It, all of them have somehow managed to move on and, you know, develop a currency option for them. It, what, what's your thoughts on the whole currency issue? What do you, what do you think is, is, is important there? Yeah, I think it's it's how you transition to, um, to that currency or um, whatever option the an independent Scottish government uh, would choose to adopt. I think Roger's right on that front. We can't be too prescriptive at this stage of what that will exactly look like. Um, we can set out a range of options. We can look at what other countries around the world have gone because it's not uncharted territory. Other countries have done this and it's, uh, again, more common than people would, would really give it countenance for us. But it's very common that countries have become independent, have developed their own um, currency, have developed their own strategies and central banks and other things that go with it. Um, so, again, that's something that... Uh, we would look to do maybe we can set out a kind of process for that happening but at this stage we don't yet have uh, all of those uh, things in front of us we are not yet independent we have to win that argument first yeah. on independence with a lot of people and say well you know if i was to tell you right here today on your doorstep this is exactly how it's going to be you know you're going to come back in, in five ten years and call me a liar i will tell you what i think will happen and what the process would be um, but if you're expecting absolute facts that's something that nobody can tell you um, in any circumstance, on either side of the argument. Of course, I Because the world I, is changing so much now. I, I, and I, I would add to this, there are far more important economic questions that need to be addressed than currency. For example, look at the global crisis at the moment in climate change and the need we have to invest and to do things related to climate change. Climate change is not going to be affected one way or the other by the choice of currency. Inequality in society is not going to be addressed by, the, by uh, whichever currency uh, uh, we choose. There are so many big questions of need in our society. Our demographic challenge 
is not going to be addressed by a choice of currency. These are all in the longer term far more substantial questions and issues that need to be addressed. Alison is absolutely right. Every country in the world uses currency. The, the day of the uh, vote on independence, um, you don't suddenly have a new currency or, or anything like that. You move to uh, where you need to go based on the needs of the, the country going forward. Well, it, it, it's been fascinating. Let's, let's just finish on a, a big question for you both um, in terms of if you could take all of these different subjects that we've been talking about uh, today um, and pick out what the major change um, that you would see, the major benefit that you would see from having control over our powers. Roger, you were touching on climate change a few moments ago. Uh, What would would it be? What would be the the biggest uh, single lever or advantage that you would you would find? Let's start with you, Alison. What would you what would you say? I think it would be sim- simplifying a tax system so you can collect the money that, that is due. Um, and I think that moving from that overly complex, bureaucratic, burdensome uh, system, um, which incentivizes people who wish to avoid paying their taxes to a, a far more simple system, which actually incentivizes economic growth uh, and supports those um, into work and make sure that um, we look after our people. I think that's what I would like to see change. And that's it's a big, complicated bit of work, but it's vitally important if you want to um, to rebalance that, uh, the economy be, and to get to make people fairer. That would be the building blocks to the kind of well-being yeah. type of economy yeah. that we, we could aspire to if we wanted to. And, yeah. and just on, on a subject, I know it's close to your heart, we could have a social security system that uh, seeks to support people rather than punish them. I know you've been fighting a long time and I, I, I like to repeat this uh, to get fairness on the uh, two-child uh, limit policy from the UK government on uh, social security, otherwise known as the rape clause, things like that, you could consign to history if you got that right, couldn't you? You absolutely could, and you've got a system that is just ridden with uh, ridden with absolute complexity at all stages. And I was reading uh, a really interesting book called "Blunders of Our Governments" around how the tax system, which features amongst many blunders, uh, the tax credit system that Gordon Brown set up. Um, and you look at these systems, and they, it's just chunks of government that exist in isolation from another, one another because the system that the UK government has is just too complex. Right? It has too many moving parts and none of them fit together well enough. Um, but whereas if you're starting afresh, you're looking at, well, how do you create um, a fairer and more equal society? What are the moving parts that you need to align to do that? When you're starting off as an independent country, these are exactly the priorities you can, you can move on um, rather than saying, no, it's always been done this way and it's too complex to change it. We're starting anew. We can move things in the direction that we want to do. And Roger? Yeah, well, of course, Alison quite rightly has stolen what was going to be my number one, and that was the tax system. So, so <laughs> we think we just agree here, Roger. It's horrible. Thank you for that, Alison. <laughs> uh, quickly moving on, I'll pick something that uh, uh, people might not immediately think of as a major economic uh, uh, matter, but to me it fundamentally is. And it's about the demographic challenge we have. I want to see Scotland become the most talent-friendly country in the world, where we're able to bring in the skills, where we're able to encourage entrepreneurs, investors, innovators to come here. And at the moment, of course, they're being blocked. So not having control of our own immigration and migration system is actually a big blockage to Scottish economic progress. 
And that's something I would like to see change and could be changed pretty readily. I would also say that what is in our economic interests in that regard is also in our interests of who we want to be as a society. We want to be a society, in my view, that is open, that is open to people of all uh, types, uh, uh, who come from uh, all sorts of different countries uh, uh, and the like. So the more open our society is, the better our society becomes, in my view. So I think getting control of uh, uh, those aspects would serve us both economically as well as in terms of the type of society we want to be in. Well, on that uh, note, I'll leave it there with you. Can I thank you very much, Roger Mullen, and uh, thank you to uh, Alison Theolis for joining me in this uh, podcast today. Well, there we have it. When it comes to debt and deficit, currency and tax, Scotland has more flexibility and opportunity than opponents of independence would have you believe. Our taxes now pay for things like nuclear weapons instead of the things we'd like more of, like doctors, nurses, schools and hospitals. All whilst those who are abusing the many loopholes in the UK tax system are getting away with not paying their share. We can and would do better with independence. Thanks for listening and don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice.